Uh, she was unable to be here this morning, and so we did some shuffling around. So mine was my lesson on grace and forgiveness are brought sort of into the present. Um, let me open with prayer, because I don't know how you guys do things here in, in the big kids stuff. I'm usually over with the youth, so I don't know how you adults run Sunday mornings. So I'm just going to call an audible, or maybe do what you always do, and open with prayer. The Lord be with you. God, we thank you for your church, um, that we are bearers of your grace, and I pray that as we um, are kind to one another, forgive one another, we might see uh, the forgiveness that you offer us through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so this morning, the, the topic is grace in forgiveness, which sounds like just saying the same thing twice. Uh, but what I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time um, investigating and doing some reflection on how it is we go about forgiving one another and asking God for forgiveness, the, the ritual of it all. And I don't mean ritual in ritualistic, but I mean ritual in the sense that how we do things, how we ask for forgiveness, how we declare forgiveness will shape who we are and will shape how we worship and it shapes our spiritual lives. Um, if you've ever read James K.A. Smith's You Are What You Love, this book has been pretty huge on my own spiritual life. And it speaks to this idea that how we worship, how we do things, really does long-term affect us, perhaps even more than the content of the things we're saying. But before I ramble about that too much, I want to use a couple of examples of liturgies of forgiveness uh, to kind of help illustrate the big problem that I want to address this morning. So the first is in a service that common worship calls reconciliation of a penitent, Uh, We might know it as um, sacramental confession. It's where someone confesses to a priest and they hear about their forgiveness. So I I took out a couple pieces, just what the penitent, the person who's confessing, says, and what the confessor, or the person hearing the confession, replies with. So the penitent will say something like this. My God, for love of you, I desire to hate and forsake all sins by which I have either displeased you, and I resolve by the help of your grace to commit them no more, and to avoid all opportunities of sin, help me to do this through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. That's what the penitent says. It's very penitential, as would be appropriate. The confessor responds with something like this. Uh, One of the prayers the confessor will say, God, the Father of mercies, has reconciled the world to himself through the death and resurrection of his Son, Jesus Christ, not counting our trespasses against us, but sending his Holy Spirit to shed abroad his love among us, by the ministry of reconciliation entrusted by Christ to his church, receive his pardon and peace to stand before him in his strength alone this day and evermore. It's a beautiful prayer. Uh, in fact, I was once speaking with our bishop uh, about this service, and he said what happens in this service isn't more forgiveness or more forgiving than what happens at the general confession on a Sunday morning, but there's something beautiful about saying particular sins and hearing them forgiven, hearing that they are forgiven thanks to Christ, things like that. So I want to compare this to what I'm calling a modern liturgy of confession that we often say to one another, and it goes like this, I'm sorry if, and the confessor responds with no problem. So we're going to spend a little bit of time observing the differences other than length. What differences happen here, I think a very common liturgy of reconciliation that we use with one another, and what happens in that penitential service. What do you notice? And that's wondering questions. I wonder what you see. This is not rhetorical. Yeah. The apology, the, the apology is conditional. It's sort of, well, if I made you unhappy, in that case, I'm sorry. 
Often this comes after the person has made very clear that you have done something to hurt them. But as you are unwilling to, to cede that ground, you say, well, you're saying that the thing I said was offensive. I'm not convinced that it was objectively offensive, but I guess if in your crazy brain you interpreted it as offensive, then fine, I guess this is an apology. But it certainly removes it from our own... Yeah, you don't own it, really. It's like, ah, I guess I'm sorry. What else do you notice about the, the differences? Yeah, Becky. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's a huge deal, right? And we often, I mean, most of us respond to confessions from friends, like, I'm terribly sorry I did this. That's our knee-jerk response is no problem, not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Why do you think we do that? This is all just going to be self-psychology here, so let's just get used to it. <laughs> yes, Steve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had your hand up? Yeah. There's both, I don't want to recognize that I've sinned, but then there's also, no, it actually didn't offend me. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a refusal to really deal with sin on either side. It's saying, maybe there was this thing that happened and we're all really upset about it, but it's difficult to deal with sin. It's difficult to be vulnerable enough to confess and to be vulnerable, vulnerable enough to forgive. And so what we choose to do is do neither. Um, yeah, Judy. Sure. Sure. If you aren't actually offended, maybe no problem is is the truth. But I wonder, and we'll get to, we're going to talk about how this affects our relationship with God and our relationship with others. When we get to the other section, maybe we'll revisit the value of saying you're forgiven anyways. Um, There's another hand over here. Yeah. Yeah, the deliver us from temptation. Yeah, there's a desire to be different in, in that. Like, I want to I avoid this sin in the future, whereas oftentimes our apologies are actually, I have no desire to change at all, but I guess it sucks that you're sad, so that, that, I'm sad that you're sad, but let's just move on past this. And I got caught. And I got caught, yeah. I'm sad that I got caught making you sad. Yeah, Dan. Mm-hmm. And um, in a way, this I'm sorry if you have no problem is a way of getting over an issue without ever getting confronted. 
it's completely because it's asking for forgiveness is a vulnerable thing because technically, I mean, politely, we never do this, right? But technically, someone could say no. The idea is, is I have a debt to you and I'd like it to be forgiven. And the person could say no, and there's a conflict there. Um, but yeah, e- even approaching the subject, if we don't talk about it, it's e- easier. And it's easier on both parties. This ultimately flattens the reconciliation process. This is not forgiveness because sin's not actually recognized, and it doesn't offer any unmerited favor afterwards. Like That's the, that's the quick definition for grace, unmerited favor. There, neither thing is happening. There's neither confession nor forgiveness in this. And yet... It's often the, the liturgy, the ritual that we use with one another. And I think if we're honest, um, it's sort of comparing apples and oranges because the reconciliation of the penitent is asking God for forgiveness. But I think if we're honest, we theologically approach God with this same mentality. We'd like a God who says, no, actually, it wasn't a problem in the first place. We want a, a God who says, and we mask it in terms of love. We mask it in terms of, Oh, I, I love you exactly as you are. And that's true, but God loving us exactly where we are is hopefully wanting us not to be the terrible people that we are deep in our rotten little hearts. Um, we're remembering the Reformation. It's a good time to acknowledge personal sin. Um, it's short-circuiting the reconciliation process. And so, in the end, it doesn't actually do the thing we want it to do. It doesn't bring people closer together. And it doesn't offer any sort of forgiveness from God. I'll, I'll actually say not quite that. It, God's forgiveness is not really contingent on our perfect apologies. But our experience of God's forgiveness often does get hindered by the way in which we approach him. So the, the first section, I just want to talk about us and God. Um, how does this flattening of the reconciliation process affect our relationship with God. The floor is open. Let me start with this. Um, as I was talking to our, to our bishop about this, about this sacrament of confession, um, or small case S sacrament of confession, if you're me, um, Again, he was very clear there's no extra grace offered in this, in this service, in this one-on-one meeting. There's no extra grace. And in the same way, I'd say, if we always approached God saying, God, I'm sorry if, I believe in grace that is broad enough and scandalous enough that God forgives us anyways. And so in a sort of metaphysical, spiritual, us and God reconciliation sense, even our broken and garbagey confessions still bring us closer to God and unite us to him. Um, Our experience or our um, objective truth of being forgiven is not affected by the quality of our confessions. Um, I know as Anglicans, we'd really like that to be the case because we have these beautiful written prayers and we'd like to say we are more forgiven than others, but that's not the case. (laughs) Um, And so whatever we say about what happens and how it affects our relationship with God, we should be clear that God's grace, the scandal of grace is that God forgives us more than we should be forgiven, not less. And not that God is pickier than he, he should be, but less picky. So, however this affects us and God, it doesn't affect an objective reality. But oftentimes our spiritual lives 
have very much to do with our subjective realities, with how we're experiencing God, often based on our own feelings and our own context and our own situation. So if, if our confessions to God are always, I'm sorry, if, and what we want to hear from God is, no big deal, I loved you anyways and I'm not bothered. If we want a God who is not offended by us, what do we end up with? Yeah, Henny. Mm-hmm. And we also don't feel like fully known because in confessing <clears throat> something specific and sensing God's forgiveness for that, we feel like someone who completely knows everything still loves us and forgives us. Mm-hmm. Because even though we know God knows everything, there's something about saying it out loud that reminds us God knows about this awful thing that I did. And hearing someone else say, that thing is forgiven. That kind of experience is powerful. Yeah. I think our potential for growth, or to grow closer to God, mm-hmm. is limited by how vulnerable, how um, truthful with ourselves we're willing to be in that confession. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's not a limitation on the God side, it's on the individual. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely not a limitation on God's side. Yeah, Joel. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why we're hesitant to say you're forgiven is because we're embarrassed or ashamed to assume the authority of granting something like that. Yeah. But if we recognize our being in the image of God, therefore his emissary to grant that, mm-hmm. our relationship to God is tighter because we're conscious of that. But if we deny that, So you're saying it's not just the, the penitent whose relationship with God is hindered. It's the confess, us offering forgiveness and actually saying it enhances our relationship with God because we're, that's ah, interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. I think we end up with a type of moral confusion mm-hmm. in the sense of like the if statement separates these two realities where one, um, we're sorry, we're, we're not really sorry because what we did wasn't really wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys are familiar with that term, moral therapeutic deism? It's, it's a, a term that was used by some researchers who researched um, youth. Uh, they did this national survey of youth and religion. What they found is, by and large, uh, millennials had this faith that they called moral therapeutic deism, that God is, uh, wants you to be good, wants you to be happy, but is distant. Um, it's not an incarnational God. It's not, it's not a God who actually has standards. God's primary goal for us is to feel good. It's, it's therapy. It's not um, therapy in a pejorative sense, not therapy as it actually works in real people's lives. Um, and yeah, this, this flattening it out makes God more interested in our comfort than he is in our sanctification. And a God who's interested in our comfort and not interested in our sanctification is a very distant God 
who does not want to get his hands dirty and become incarnate and take on our flesh. Because if God just wanted to comfort the incarnation, it was a very poor way to do it. Um, there are other ways that God could have comforted us from afar. Um, and so flattening this out ends up pushing God away. We do it in the name of bringing God closer and nearer and making him like a huggable teddy bear, but we actually end up pushing him further away. Yeah. You had your hand up and then go for it. Um, perhaps we could ask, although uh, forgiveness, even when sort of done poorly, mm-hmm. when done poorly, is still valid, um, does that mean that uh, God's glorification through his forgiveness mm-hmm. um, is that always to the same extent, right? So okay. does our knowledge of our relationship and orientation to sin and to God uh, change how God can be glorified through forgiving? Yeah, brilliant. And I want to build on that and say, like, if we're not really willing to go into the refiner's fire and allow God to change us, mm-hmm. we, like, we're changed by that fire, right? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can come out of it more beautiful, but not because of who we are, but because of what God has done in that mm-hmm. moment. And if we really go deep with God and, and with those sins, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're allow- it's, it's like we're allowing ourselves to be changed. There's like an element of will there. Yeah, yeah. That we're, we're saying, okay, God, this is the process by which you make yourself known in my life to the people around me. And forgiveness may be objectively true in some sort of eternal sense, but my experience of it and my willingness to be transformed by it will make this place more like like heaven. I think a lot of times um, it's hard not to take the logical conclusion where our mind first jumps to like, okay, does this send me to hell or not? <laughs> Let's all just boil it down to do I get to spend eternity with Jesus or not? And as long as the answer is, I still get to spend eternity with Jesus, we assume, oh, okay, everything's fine. But that's buying into a lie that the most abundant life we can live is one of carnal pleasure and that a life following Jesus is delayed gratification. And we buy into that lie. We sort of see people who don't live virtuous lives and we say like, well, they're getting all the fun now, but we then want some justice for them later. And so we, we think about forgiveness in those terms, that the most important thing is whether or not it ticks me over into the hell side or not. Instead of thinking that abundant life is following Jesus and it looks nothing like what the world would offer us, and so in receiving forgiveness and doing that hard work and receiving part of that justification now and being transformed now, it isn't just like doing your homework at school so you don't have to do it at home later. It's actually living into the future the best way possible um because if the gospel is just you get to heaven later and who cares now it's it's a pretty weak gospel um as i see it yeah dan I'm rereading um, in preparation for next month. I'm rereading Pilgrim's Progress, and you know, if we were to write Pilgrim's Progress today, we would have Christian coming through the gate, being saved, and then he takes a nice, uh, easy journey all the way to the celestial city. And yet, at every point along the way, there are choices. 
to uh, the castle of doubt and the giant despair. Hmm. And um, there are consequences for taking turns. Yeah. And we tend to want to believe, I think, in, in our culture, in our suburban mall church culture, that what we do is get right with Jesus and then everything is fine uh, from here on in. Yeah, who, who cares about anything else? I'm right with Jesus. Uh, Steve, you had your hand up. Yeah. To see and to, to, to then need to go that I have sinned, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a difficulty uh, in, in the name of the Reformation. We can again remember Martin Luther perhaps before or October 31st, 1517. And remember him, the first time he celebrates the Mass, he sits there and has this incredible existential crisis because he's aware of his own sin. And there's a temptation when we're truly examining ourselves and our sins to grow in despair and not remember the forgiveness. And any of us who have experienced that world of despair, where looking at our own sins, we doubt the goodness of God. How could God actually forgive us? This flattening out feels like grace because suddenly I don't hate myself as much anymore. But it's the answer to to deep despair about sin is not stop despairing about sin. The answer to deep despair about sin is understand how gracious God is and have a bigger theology of grace not a smaller theology of sin. Um, I defer to Martin back here. Well, just there's a, an objectivity to repentance, which is to seeing yourself from God's eyes, and it, it's not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it undoes us. I think this is Luther's understanding of the law. We imagine, as you said, we're doing really something very lovely, and then we suddenly get the shocking cold bite that says you're utterly fooling yourself once again. And we sometimes want to control, we want to control the process because we want to say like, okay, I'll do these things. That's the, the appeal of, of doing some sort of penance is that like, I'll do the things and get the forgiveness afterwards, which puts us back in control. Um, it removes some element of vulnerability. Um, when we do this with other people, we might say like, I'm sorry that I did this thing, but here's how I already fixed it. So don't be mad. Um, and forgiveness only happens. It's not forgiveness if you pay it back. Right? Like if I owe you $10 and I pay you $10, you don't forgive my debt. If I owe you $10 and you say you don't have to pay me $10, that's forgiveness. And so our desire to, to fix it is another way of shortchanging the process because then, then we're not really being forgiven by God. We're trying to just make it up to God. Um, and if, if we believe anything that the medieval people taught us, Anselm has this great thing about how 
any sin against the infinite God to whom we owed anything, everything anyways is an infinite sin by which we can't possibly atone. It's his argument for why God had to become man in the first place because only an infinite sacrifice could have paid for the infiniteness of our sins because we've committed them against an infinite God. Um, and that forgiveness is really important because it takes us out of the driver's seat. Yeah. So in the, the modern world of abstraction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least when I think about the Middle Ages and all the meditation mm-hmm. and prayers and reflection that they're doing, it seems like a larger opportunity. And I don't know that I, I'm guilty of, of taking that time yeah. to really scrutinize in the mirror, you know, what sins have I committed? Because it takes a lot. It takes a lot to set aside, like, dedicated non, like, screen time. Um, but then... <laughs> But then to, like, choose to do that to feel awful about yourself is not typically a priority. Like, I want to do, I'd like to set aside time apart from all of my, like, dopamine-inducing distractions so that I can confess. That's not a, an easy habit to build. Um, yeah, absolutely. Someone else had their hand up? Yeah. I just wonder how this applies to, for example, people in their Yeah. Yeah, so someone who's ordered to do something terrible, um, that's a hard place to be. And it's actually where I think confession is all the more useful. Because if you have a conflicting moral situation, I mean, most of us have been in an experience where there's no right answer to a question. Um, And oftentimes, because we want to be in control, we want to have figured out which one is the better option and then say that was the good option. But what a, a robust habit of confession teaches us is that we can choose the lesser of two evils and still repent and say, God, I still did this bad thing, and I'm sad that I did this bad thing, and ask for forgiveness because of it. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a military chaplain, and I've had no training in order to be one. But my gut reaction, if suddenly I was faced with someone in that crisis, would be build up a robust habit of repentance. Because in that process, you will hear grace. Um, because even those of us who aren't in the sort of fun virtue puzzles of like, you know, does the train run over one or five people? In our real lives, we have real situations where it feels like we have no right answer. And in those situations, perhaps it's because we didn't have the sanctified imagination to know the right answer, or we just live in a broken world. And sometimes sin happens despite our best efforts otherwise. And that's why we continuously repent, because we we just need to be in that habit. It puts us in a right theological framework, um, it puts us in the right relationship with God. It helps us properly understand a God. Um, sometimes it gets very tiring to repent of the same sins over and over again, no matter how much you, in your beautiful penitent prayer, you talk about wanting to change your habits, and then you do the exact same things. Um, and it's Jesus who says to Peter, who wants to limit sins, how many times should I forgive? And Jesus, who is our fullest expression of God, says, you just never stop forgiving. 70 times 7 is not a real number. Right. Yeah. Um, it kind of makes me think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who felt as though he had no other choice but to assassinate mm-hmm. Hitler, <laughs> to assassinate Hitler yeah. because of the violence that he was committing, but still considered that to be a sinful mm-hmm. action in itself, that he still felt as though he needed to repent for trying to assassinate Hitler, which I think a lot of us would not even question. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And maybe it can, we'll maybe get to it later, but it can help us appreciate the, the weight of corporate sin and the fact that sometimes the reason sins, individual acts of sins have to happen is because we're stuck in this garbage world and this garbage society and these things have to happen and that's unfortunate and we still confess perhaps on behalf of others around us. Yeah, Tim. Couldn't the, and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm mislabeling what you're saying here, couldn't this attitude of um, perpetual confession and perpetual forgiveness, mm-hmm. if uh, exaggerated, lead to, lead to a, a psychological damage, making that a little stupid answer? <laughs> I think maybe when we don't have a full appreciation of of grace, and and there there's some balance there. But Joy, you're raising your hand to comment on that. No, no, that's that's great. That's she should be up here. Um, yeah, uh, Elaine, you put your hand up. That's right. Yeah. It's hedging your bets. So really the bottom line is do we trust God in yeah. relationship with him 
and in our relationship with other people. And it goes back to what she was asking about in the military. Yeah. Um, you can defy the order, but you have to accept the consequences mm -hmm. of that, and then under God, accept yeah. I did the right thing, or do the thing you're ordered, accept the consequences, yeah. and trust God in that too. But it's really about trust. Yeah. And our lives have so defiled trust and our ability to trust that we really need to go back to God and learn again yeah. what does trust mean? Stick ourselves in the boat with him while he's taking a nap. Yeah. And I think, you know, different people will likely need to expand one side or the other. Right? Like, you might be in a place in your spiritual life where you're basically, like, waltzing in, confessing, and being like, it's cool, God loves me, doing the cheap grace thing that Bonhoeffer talks about. And there you have a very robust theology of grace, but you need a little bit more of an understanding of your sin. Um, and many of us are on the other side. Um, so I want to go, while we still have a little bit of time here, um, I want to talk about how this affects our relationships with one another. I feel like this not using I'm sorry if statements would be a not uncommon thing for like a relationship counselor to talk about, like a marriage counselor. But I think we sometimes prioritize that one type of relationship in human society over relationships with friends. Um, so, like, imagine what would happen if every time one of your friends said, like, I'm sorry, like, I shouldn't have done that, you said, I forgive you. Just think about, like, the awkwardness it would suddenly be with all your friends. <laughs> or if someone said that to you and you're like, oh, oh, like, my bad, and they said, I forgive you. I feel like my gut reaction would be like, who do you think you are? <laughs> like, I just stubbed your toe. But... But in reality, if we're honest about this confession process, if we're honest about saying, I'm sorry, and I'm asking for forgiveness, we should try and actually say those words to one another. Um, and it's suddenly vulnerable. Suddenly, every, every offense that you say, I'm sorry for, and having grown up in Canada, we say sorry for a lot. <laughs> suddenly, all of those are requesting an I forgive you afterwards. Um, and again, that's vulnerable, that's difficult, that's challenging, because it requires us to suddenly be in conflict, not in the bad sense of the word, but in like the definition of the word, suddenly be in conflict with all of the people we care about. And yet, it has the potential for building a lot more relationship that actually you know, enhances the body of Christ. Um, but how else, like, I don't know, maybe you guys have experienced these things with one another. How else does this affect our relationships with one another? Yeah. So hypothetically, maybe having had the experience yesterday, <laughs> um, um, a student apologizes to me. Uh, I I felt like I had like three seconds mm -hmm. to come up with an answer that wasn't "I forgive you" because <laughs> that would have led to the situation right. you're talking about. But um, what I really wanted to do was call for like two hours to reflect. Um, you know, like what is the wise Yeah. Right now, or do I need to just think about everything that comes downstream from what happened hmm. before I can say with knowledge and honesty, yeah. I forgive you. But I didn't. I didn't think to say, you know, give me a couple hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what should I have done? Other people have answers. I'll go to those people. Tammy, yes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and then we go to, and I'm 
Mm -hmm. And just like you said, but this is my thought. It's like with God's, this doesn't go back to my kindergartners, but from an adult perspective, you're right. I don't know that we're ever really ready as human beings to say, I forgive you. But I think that that's where we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to work that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I don't think in our humanness that we are ever two hours later or ten days yeah. later that we're necessarily going to get there on our own. I don't know. But yeah. I, I know. It's like, is that honest or not? Yeah, we'll go around. Well, I think for both of them, when you say, I forgive you, you're like entering into a contract with that person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and living that out loud, um, you have a, a commitment to that person to start again. And, and it, us being humans, we remember. Mm-hmm. We remember the, all the times that you failed more than all the times we succeeded. Yeah. So it's, it's really hard to say that to someone without the two hours to consider, yeah. <laughs> you know, weigh out the pros and cons. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Christy. Yeah. Then what if they forgive you before you forgive them and like a race yeah. to forgiving? Yeah. Training in the ritual. I mean, we sometimes imagine that, that ritual is fake, that like doing something repeatedly makes it less authentic. Um, but I think all of us recognize our hearts are unruly and restless, and we have to train them to want to do the things that they ought to do. It's why we like collects, right? Because you hear the collect on a Sunday morning, and you're like, oh, yeah, that, sound, that sounds like a thing that I feel, but I didn't know how to say it that way. Sometimes having the ritual helps you do things in a way that you want to do, maybe even before you're ready to do them. Um, yeah, Becky. I'm just so caught thinking back to 
there are like so many hands right now. I'll, I'll do Bruce because he hasn't said anything yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in our Christian tradition, we have a very strong sense of ourselves now as the temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, since Reformation, we've called that the priesthood of all believers, uh, one aspect of, of ourselves as a temple. So maybe we can bypass a lot of this tension of, I, I need to forgive, but I don't feel it, remembering that we're not the ones really forgiving. Hmm. Yeah. In, in the same way that I would encourage someone who's wrestling with doubt to still say the words of the Nicene Creed with the church and sort of let this speech act bring something into existence. Like, I'm going to say this, and maybe even being honest and saying, I, I forgive you, and it is hard for me to do that, and I'm still wrestling with resentment. But, like, or the effects are still here, or I'm, I'm, I want to forgive you, or, or maybe, you know, depending on the relationship, varying degrees of vulnerability. But to say to sort of speak this into his existence and then pray that your feelings follow um, to try and, and navigate it that way. I don't know. Maybe that's the, that's the wrong idea. This is not a perfect pastoral counseling session. Um, there are other people over here with hands up, but now Tammy's is up, so she wins. Well, and I think a lot of like, I think forgiveness, it's that whole process thing. I like, you speak into it, but the relationship isn't instantly going mm-hmm. to be what it was. And yeah. I think Yeah, people are often forgiven but still encounter consequences. Yeah, Jennifer. Mm-hmm. 
And I think, yeah, because <laughs> then we have opportunity. We have a good relationship, but I'm going to be a jerk for a little bit so we can be even better. Um, and I think we've all experienced that. Um, a couple, I have a couple notes for closing, and then we have to get ready to do all of this all over again. Um, so one thing, it was brought up, what do you do when someone says um, no, no problem? Like when it actually wasn't an offense against you. I would say that if someone comes up to you says, I sorry, says, I'm sorry that this happened, or I'm sorry that I did this, and you say, I didn't even notice, I think telling them that they are forgiven is still really important because on their end of it, they still have done something that has offended their conscience, and they are still living with a recognition of their sin and have been vulnerable enough to come to you and ask for forgiveness. And I think the way that you care for them is to tell them that it's forgiven. Because if you say no problem, then maybe they kind of feel better. But again, you're just restoring the neutral. You're, you're flattening out the process. There's been a confession. And you can even say, you know what? It didn't bother me that much, but I forgive you. I would even recommend that. I think we need to say I forgive you more often than we don't. Um, because I think it's good for people. Um, and I think it's, we need to apologize and truly apologize more often th- than we currently do. Um, and to that extent, I'll make a brief reference to something else, and then we'll, we'll close. Um, I hinted at corporate sin before, and I think there's a lot of value to corporate apologies. I mean, the Old Testament is full of people apologizing on behalf of God's people to God who weren't actually themselves sinful. The point being is that there had been some sort of offense. And I think if you look at countries that have in the last 150 years had something terrible happen and then reconciled, it always included an act of public and corporate repentance. So we think about um, truth and reconciliation in South Africa, how after apartheid there was this big open opportunity to apologize and wrestle through the horrors of apartheid. Or we think about um, a lot of work that was done in Rwanda after the genocide that had to do with this idea of this was a bad thing and we're all going to publicly name it and say it was bad. Um, Or you think about how in in Germany they're like regularly and corporately 
apologizing for the horrors of World War II. I think that's a valuable thing, and I think we should encourage those things to happen, even from the church. There's a priest at a church in St. Louis. Um, his name's Dan Kincaid. He's in our diocese. And he went, um, he's an incredibly conservative Anglo-Catholic guy, but he went to the Pride Parade in St. Louis doing animal blessings and saying, I'm sorry to people. Um, he hasn't changed his theology of human sexuality at all, but what he has done is recognize there are horrors that the church has done to people, and those people need to hear that the church is sorry. Even though Dan didn't do it, the thing is there are people who need to hear repentance, and they're never going to hear that from the exact specific person who, who perpetuated it. But as, in as much as it was done by a corporate entity, there needs to be room for corporate repentance. I think wounds fester among people groups when there have been offenses against people groups. And you can, there are a thousand different examples of where you can think this would be beneficial. But um, in as much as unconfessed and unforgiven sins or unnamed forgiven sins um, affect our relationship with God and our relationship with other individuals, I think we need to be careful and cautious and prayerful about how we can be in the process of corporate repentance and corporate forgiveness. Um, because I think that would do a lot of good for corporate problems, if that makes any sense. Um, well, thank you, everybody. I'm getting the, the sign that I need to be done. So thank you. Thank you.